I'm Bonnie Glazer, Managing Director of the Indo-Pacific Program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. China's use of industrial policies is not new, nor is it unique to China, but it's only been in the last decade that the Chinese party state has provided systemic support to frontier technologies, such as artificial intelligence, robotics, and communications. In 2015, Xi Jinping announced the Made in China 2025 plan, aiming for Chinese dominance in 20 key sectors, such as information and green energy technologies and semiconductors. Since then, the party state has become increasingly involved in private sector innovation, aiming for Chinese self-sufficiency in cutting-edge sectors. There's no official numbers on how much the Chinese state is spending on various subsidies. According to one estimate in 2019, it ranges from 1.7 to 4.9% of GDP, surpassing by far any other nation's spending on industrial policy. Yet the success of these costly measures is at best uneven, especially in the crucial semiconductor sector, where the challenges that China faces in its quest to catch up and surpass leading designers and manufacturers is now compounded by U.S.-led export controls. With me today to discuss China's industrial policies, how they intersect with PRC foreign policy, is John Lee, Director of East-West Futures, a consultancy for political and risk analysis of China's foreign policy and political economy. He's also affiliated with the Leiden Asia Center. Before that, John worked for the Australian Department of Defense and Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and he was a senior analyst at the Mercator Institute for China Studies. John's research focuses on China's semiconductor-related industries, cyberspace governance, and future telecommunications networks. Welcome to the China Global Podcast, John. Oh, thanks very much for having me, Bonnie. Well, let's start by talking about industrial policy in general. Does the way that China implements industrial policy differ from the way that countries in Europe or the United States have pursued industrial policies in the past? And if so, what is the difference and why does it matter? I suppose that we should go back to first principles here, because of course, um, although one country originally had an industrial revolution, um, in the post-war context, post-World War II, we can treat the US and Europe as being already industrialized economies. So when we talk um, even about European economic policy um, since 1945, um, that's come in a context where, of course, some European countries were already advanced economies, um, whereas China, um, has been seeking to catch up to the global technological industrial frontier pretty much since some um, Western powers intruded upon it in a serious way in the mid-1800s. Many of your listeners will be, of course, familiar with the history here with the emphasis on self-strengthening through acquisition of advanced technology, which goes all the way back to the Qing dynasty. Um, but Certainly, you can trace um, through the history of the PRC since um, 1949 a development in industrial policy and technology policy, which does have, let's say, Chinese characteristics um, and which distinguishes it um, from even the approach that we are now seeing being revived in uh, Europe and the United States. Has China's use of industrial policy or the ends that those policies serve changed very much under Xi Jinping? Has China gone in a fundamentally new direction? 
I think that we need to recognize there's more continuity in Chinese approaches um, than is often the impression you'd get from much commentary today. Um, yes, there has been a change in emphasis under Xi Jinping. Um, there's been, to oversimplify it, um, more centralization, um, the return of the party front and center in all aspects, um, and a greater emphasis on security issues. But really, there are also many lines of continuity that go back um, certainly to his predecessor administrations, but which can even be traced back into the 1990s before. So the approach of seeking to combine essentially a command style economy with free market economics um, is one that's still endorsed officially um, in Chinese policy statements. What you saw coming out of the two meetings, for example, last month, um, with the change in leadership and the new premier and um, other senior officials, um, all of this is in line with a long-standing approach, um, which again has been emphasized under C, of um, seeking to harness, if you like, the energies of the private sector to the leadership of the party. How do China's industrial policies advance Beijing's foreign policy objectives? So we know going back to the 19th Party Congress, Xi Jinping set a target for China to become a global leader in innovation by 2035. So how has then Xi Jinping used industrial policies to achieve this goal? Well, industrial policy in China serves the same basic goal that it does everywhere else, which is to compensate for market conditions in a way that allows some um, Chinese companies um, and institutions to upgrade technologically um, and to uh, capture more advantageous positions in industries and global supply chains. Of course, China has applied these policies in a way and on a scale um, which is quite distinct. But um, the goal of uh, building China towards um, an innovation power, just as some um, Xi has declared goals of building China into a cyberspace superpower and um, uh, building the PLA into a military that can fight and win modern wars, um, is defined um, in terms of the, the capacity to attain uh, the sort of capabilities and position that the globally leading countries occupy today. So just as um, in the case of the PLA, the benchmark um, is the US military, even if um, the PLA may not be seeking to imitate it in every way. That is, if you like, the technological frontier that China aspires to meet in terms of its own capabilities. So with emerging technologies, um, the goal of industrial policy is to allow China um, an innovation policy, um, to allow China to effectively compete on equal terms or perhaps even dominant ones um, with those states which currently dominate the commanding heights of various industries and supply chains. And it's worth emphasizing there that the fact China has these goals in place um, itself reflects the fact that despite the progress that has been made in many areas, China is still generally a technological laggard and that um, 
particularly the key technologies or the core technologies, as Xi Jinping calls them, um, are to a high degree still dominated by the United States and by its advanced economy allies. How do you think the intensification of U.S.-China strategic competition has influenced and, and shaped China's pursuit of industrial policy? Well, if we backtrack a little, so China during the reform and opening era has essentially joined a system of open globalization um, on its own terms, um, which is where many of the tensions have come from, because um, it has been able to pursue industrial policy in its many forms um, in ways that smaller economies have not been able to, smaller developing countries, um, by virtue simply of its size and weight. But um, China was participating and still is um, to a large degree in a world economy um, under the same structural conditions as everyone else. Um, and if you look at the evolution of many of the industries which are currently uh, at the fore strategic competition and the chip sector, I think everyone is now familiar with, um, China has developed its domestic capacities in this sector um, and others by participating in international supply chains and markets. During the earlier decades of reform and opening, um, there were still tendencies towards um, more statist and command-style approaches to technological upgrading. Um, but these were progressively abandoned, or at least some um, resolved from, as they were found to not be competitive um, in fast-moving globalized sectors. Um, and instead, um, as mentioned before, the Chinese state has sought to work with market forces, um, but to exert what um, Barry Norton has described as grand steerage, where the state seeks to direct, if you like, um, the flow of um, the general flow and direction of travel, um, while allowing market forces and entrepreneurial spirits to operate in a way that maximizes um, the available resources and efficiencies. Now, the question that Chinese policies, policymakers face today is whether they are able to continue this approach um, when their access to these foreign markets um, and sources of capital and knowledge um, is being progressively choked off through measures from the US government um, and increasingly from its allies. Um, and that, I think, is still very much an open question. So I want to ask you how you assess the efficacy of Chinese industrial policies. I realize this is a very general question, but maybe you can cite some examples of where you think China has been relatively successful, if there are any, because I know there are certainly examples where they have poured a lot of money into trying to develop certain technologies and not gotten a lot of bang for the buck. Certainly. Um, you might be thinking of the automotive sector there, which is one of the, or until recently at least, one of the poster children for uh, the failure or, if you like, the lackluster results of Chinese industrial policy. Um, and interestingly enough, um, that is uh, an example of the sort of things which are often associated in the popular mind with Chinese industrial policy, with joint ventures um, and mandatory technology transfers and so on. Um, where I think you see the most success in technological catch-up, um, at least as far as commercialized technologies are concerned, um, has been in sectors where Chinese companies have been left largely to pursue uh, 
their business um, according to the way they see fit, um, but with the support of the state um, in terms of enabling factors. Um, and if we wanted to give specific examples, then um, from the viewpoint of uh, the global industry, um, China's success in solar panels um, might not be seen as a success, but rather as an overall negative um, for the global industry. And um, not necessarily from the viewpoint of consumers, though. But certainly, it's a case of where um, Chinese industrial policy has been successful in enabling Chinese firms not only to come to dominate the market, but also to build up their financial resources and R&D capacities, um, which then, of course, provides a self-reinforcing cycle um, to maintain and extend industry dominance. And you've seen the same thing happen in other areas which are now very much in the political spotlight. Um, Large capacity batteries for electric vehicles is another well-known example um, where, again, um, the support that the Chinese state has provided, um, for example, in terms of measures to incentivize the uptake of electric vehicles um, and a whole host of other measures has allowed companies like Capital um, like BYD to capture technologically as well as market leading roles in this sector to the point where it's now quite difficult for foreign competitors to catch up. And it's worth perhaps noting there that um, the increasing market concentration um, that we've seen in many technological sectors here um, really is making this to some extent um, a winner takes all or winner takes most game um, in many supply chains. So. You mentioned semiconductors, which I'm sure that we'll discuss more shortly, but the fact that um, when it comes to advanced fabrication, to making the most sophisticated chips, you have two, perhaps three companies in the world which can be said to be at the leading edge um, is, I think, emblematic of how many of these advanced sectors are growing. And so to particularly for a country like China, um, which is starting from a lower technological base, um, to be competitive, um, the imperative is to provide more rather than less state support to ensure that they are able to close the gap. The United States began this policy of imposing export controls on semiconductor uh, technology going to China last uh, October and stated quite clearly that this was aimed at preventing China really from catching up in various parts of the global supply chain. So before that announcement was made, what was the state of Chinese subsidies for that sector in China? Were they already prioritizing trying to develop uh, semiconductor companies? And how effective were they at that point? And then we can talk about the impact of those export controls. Sure. Well, again, the Chinese state's approach to these things is multi-pronged, and we could talk about things like economic espionage. Um, to use an example that's currently in the headlines, um, the first foreign company which has been subjected to cybersecurity review in China, Micron, um, uh, is one that claims to have been subjected to Chinese industrial espionage um, and is one of um, the leading memory vendors in the chip sector. Um, so. There's that angle to it. Um, but if we talk about, um, uh, if you like, um, direct financial subsidies um, or support, then as uh, mentioned before, the Chinese approach to this and many other sectors over the last decade plus certainly has been to 
leverage rather than exclude, if you like, market instruments. Um, and the archetypal vehicle for this has been the so-called government guidance funds. So state-linked um, investment funds, which are heavily capitalized in the first instance from Chinese policy banks and state enterprises, um, which are kept under close supervision by the Chinese authorities um, and which have a mandate to essentially direct resources where uh, it is they are seen to best meet the state's policy objectives um, in the market economy. So in the case of the chip sector, um, this is the so-called big fund for the IC industry, um, which was set up in 2014, um, which has directed um, hundreds of billions of renminbi towards um, various companies across the very complex semiconductor supply chain um, in a way that is meant to advance the stated policy objectives. And in the same document, um, which established the big fund or declared um, the establishment of the big fund in 2014. And there are specific goals laid out um, in terms of, for example, fabrication, um, semiconductor manufacturing equipment and other discrete segments of the supply chain. Now, how effective the big fund's activities have been, and one might extrapolate from that to this uh, approach to industrial policy in general is a matter of debate. Many commentators would suggest that the fact that the big funds executives um, and many of those in China's chip industry associated with it, um, a decent number of them have disappeared into the Communist Party's um, disciplinary investigation system over the last year, um, is a good sign that the authorities do not think that they have been making the right decisions. And if you look at where um, the bulk of the big funds investments have gone over the last few years, um, it's not necessarily that they were wrong on their face, but they clearly have neglected certain segments which have been targeted by US export controls, semiconductor manufacturing equipment being one obvious example. Um, so I think there's um, an ongoing evaluation in China at the moment um, at the highest levels over how effective, um, at least in this, in the case of this um, very critical industry, um, the general approach has been. Um, but so far, um, all that we have seen in response is, at least at the political level, um, a push for greater centralization. And so, um, again, uh, just shortly after the two meetings finished in March, um, you saw the announcement, for instance, of the Central Commission for Science and Technology. Um, you are seeing uh, more rather than less attempts by the party center um, and by perhaps Xi Jinping personally to impose themselves um, on the policymaking and supervision process. And whether this is actually um, what the uh, Chinese economy needs um, in sectors that are under pressure, like the chip industry, or whether um, this is simply going to aggravate the problems. I think is going to be worked out over the coming years. How worried is Beijing about these new restrictions? And have you seen China take countermeasures so far, or do you expect them to? And uh, of course, they countermeasures could be against uh, foreign companies, uh, but also I'm curious about whether it will affect the way that they're pursuing their own industrial policies and other efforts to catch up with the rest of the world and close the gap? Will it lead to more espionage, as you mentioned, or more perhaps efforts to attract talent from abroad, these other ways that they try to catch up technologically? 
Well, I think it will vary by sector. But if we use the chip sector broadly defined as an example, the issue for China here is that it is such a complex and transnationally distributed supply chain that simply replicating all of those functions at the technological cutting edge within China is basically an impossible goal. Um, they're at the moment very much um, focused, it would seem, um, you know, by virtue of necessity on firefighting and dealing with the immediate crises caused by the expanding U.S. measures. So, for example, I mentioned memory chips before. Um, the Chinese or the big fund actually um, has recently put another large sum of money into China's memory chip leader, YMTC, um, which is a strong signal, I think, that despite this company having been targeted by the October U.S. controls um, quite directly, um, the Chinese authorities are hoping that they can not only maintain its viability, but perhaps um, help YMTC remain at the global technological cutting edge. Um, and certainly there's a case to be made that um, one reason why it was quite specifically targeted by the U.S. measures from October is because um, it was a rare example of a Chinese company in the chip sector, um, which is now becoming potentially competitive um, at the technological frontier with global industry leaders like Micron, Samsung, SK Hynix from South Korea. Um, I mean, this takes us to, uh, let's say, a wider question about whether the emerging like technological containment strategy um, from the Biden administration is going to be focused um, on Chinese military modernization and on human rights abuses, which were the official justifications for the October export controls on chips, or whether, um, and there is certainly quite a lot of circumstantial evidence um, to support this view, um, the goal is really to slow China's technological progress um, on a broad basis. And of course, the fact that many of these technologies are inherent dual use, inherently, uh, with chips being, of course, um, an excellent example. Um, that means that really this goes with the territory and that you, if you do want to, for example, deny China the capacity um, to develop advanced applications of artificial intelligence, or at least to run them um, by denying them access to the necessary chips for that, um, then you will necessarily have to punish the entire Chinese civilian economy in parallel because it's the same technologies that support technological advance in both spheres. Well, that brings me to my question of your own assessment of whether this is the right set of policies that the U.S. has now initiated and is considering extending to AI and quantum computing. And it's not clear yet whether this will simply be targeted, as you say, at China's military modernization or whether it really will be targeted far more broadly. So do you think this policy will end up strengthening, for example, in the semiconductor sector, the Chinese chip ecosystem, or do you think that the U.S. is going to be successful? I think that it's quite likely we'll see, if you like, um, contradictory things happening. So on the one hand, of course, cutting off China's access to critical inputs will damage um, the Chinese semiconductor industry writ large. There are just too many things that Chinese companies cannot 
do themselves at this point in time, at least not at the technological frontier. So it may be one thing, for example, to be able to make a certain type of equipment or chemical, but whether you can achieve the performance requirements, whether it's reliability or let's say um, purity in chemicals, which is necessary for processes at, again, the advanced end of the supply chain, um, as the phone industry leaders in Japan, South Korea, Germany, Netherlands, and elsewhere, um, is a completely different question. Uh, if we were to, again, use the chip sector as an example um, to address this issue of whether China can achieve autarky or not, I would say that, um, I mean, the simply phrasing the question that way um, is to simplify the problem to a level which no longer accurately describes the real world, because there are so many different technologies and applications involved that it's possible that China may find its technological progress, at least for the time being, completely halted in one area while it's making quite a lot of progress in another. Um, and there, um, again, US policy is an important determinant. So the uh, undersecretary in charge of US export controls, for example, undersecretary Estevez um, at Commerce has expressly said um, in public that from his viewpoint, it's fine if the Chinese continue to, for example, make chips required for airbags in automobiles. In fact, um, that would be a desirable thing because if they didn't, that capacity would have to be developed elsewhere. And we're facing, because of the increasing digitalization of the world economy, a secular rise in demand for semiconductors. So to cut China off completely um, would have quite serious um, flow and effects to the supply of semiconductors and to downstream industries worldwide. And you are seeing, I guess, the same considerations at play in terms of the pressure on Korean firms like Samsung and SK Hynix to leave or at least not expand and upgrade technologically their operations in China because they are very dependent on the facilities there um, and they are the dominant suppliers of memory chips on a global basis. So finally, maybe ask you to look a bit into your crystal ball out maybe a decade and predict where you think this U.S.-China competition is going to be in advanced technology. You, you think we're going to have a very mixed picture of China more advanced in some technologies, continue to be lagging behind in others? Or do you think that Xi Jinping will be able to be essentially effective in making technological breakthroughs and achieving dominance in these really core strategic areas of technologies, such as those identified in Made in China 2025, uh, that this will really alter the fundamental global balance of power? Well, only the big questions in your podcast, Bonnie. I think, um, again, <laughs> perhaps for your audience, um, to try and make this as tangible as possible, I'll stick with the chip sector. Um, which, as I've said, is actually um, a really vast and complex beast already. Um, it is honestly too early to judge what the effects of, let's say, the U.S. measures from October last year's last year are going to be. Um, but we can identify certain things which or factors um, which will have a major impact to watch. And I think one that's capturing a lot of attention at the moment is the willingness of U.S. allies who also play important roles in these supply chains to 
follow the U.S. lead um, in either completely aligning their export and investment controls to deny Chinese access to these technologies, or at least meeting the Americans halfway, if you like, enough so that um, if Chinese technological progress is not frozen, it's at least slowed to the point where uh, people in Washington are not concerned about China taking a lead over the United States. Um, and if we, uh, again, get more specific, um, the reported trilateral discussions among the Japanese, US and Netherlands governments um, are exactly on this issue about whether those two countries, um, whose firms are critical vendors of semiconductor manufacturing equipment, um, are prepared to introduce controls um, which essentially uh, meet US policy objectives in terms of denying the Chinese access to at least some of the most sophisticated technologies that they would need to make the most advanced chips. I mean, the extent to which other countries um, who also play key roles in these technologies are prepared to go along with the US approach, if you like, um, is uh, still, I would say, um, a relative unknown. Um, and you may have read um, a lot of media commentary about the emergence of a so-called chips alliance, about um, the Netherlands and Japan simply getting on board with these new US controls. But when you look at the details of what's actually been announced, um, I think the picture becomes a lot more complex. I mentioned before, in the case of the South Koreans, the fact that um, their leading memory chip companies um, are highly exposed to China and are also making a lot of noise at the moment about um, the conditions which are attached to the US Chips Act, um, which of course is seeking to revive the semiconductor industry within US borders, and indeed to build it up for future technological leadership. So there are a lot of different moving pieces here, including the economic competition between the US and its allies, which is often underdone in commentary on these issues, but is in fact um, a key variable. Um, and a lot of that um, will go to determining outcomes here before you even bring Chinese reactions or policies into this. Maybe to just conclude quickly um, from a Chinese viewpoint, because of course this is a podcast on China. Um, I think that, again, we will need to see whether the government of Xi Jinping is able to find a balance between the centralizing tendency um, and its willingness to allow Chinese firms to adapt in the ways necessary um, to continue advancing in technologies which have been fundamentally globalized. I mean, the reality is, again, that the progress that China has made in its semiconductor industry um, has been intimately tied to the global supply chain because it is global. Um, and no one country um, has attempted to develop, if you like, um, a wholly indigenous capacity to make advanced chips because it is simply too expensive and too difficult. Um, the problem from the Chinese viewpoint now is that if they are shut off from this globalized system um, and can only rely on their own resources, um, the prospects, at least the most complex technologies, of being able to keep pace um, with the global technological frontier um, is quite small, I would say. That's, again, a different issue from being able to provide for the basic needs of the Chinese economy and, let's say, a simple definition of autarky. But once more, um, the, if you like, um, precondition for that outcome would be for China to be hermetically sealed off 
from those global supply chains and markets. And the reality is that we're still quite some way from that. We've been talking with John Lee, director of East-West Futures, a consultancy for political and risk analysis of China's foreign policy and political economy. Thanks so much for joining us, John. Always a pleasure, Bonnie.